This is episode 16 with co-guests Alana Sheikh and Shara Evans. Welcome to the Futures Intelligent Leadership Flowcast. This is your host, Tyler Mongan. I am the president of Haku Global. This is a space for globally minded experts to dialogue about the future of leadership with a focus on the key question, how can leadership be more intelligent about futures? From this conversation, innovative wisdom, practical tools, and actionable insights emerge to help future-ready leaders thrive in an uncertain, complex, and exponentially changing world. Let's jump in to the dialogue. Aloha and welcome to this episode of the Futures Intelligent Leadership Flowcast. Today I'm joined by co-guests Alana Sheikh and Shara Evans. Alana is a senior international development consultant and coach working with high-level government officials and development donors. She has skills speaking in four languages, Arabic, Russian, French, and Uzbek, and is a former USAID office director and senior TED fellow who recently gave a talk on COVID-19 that received a lot of attention. Shara is a keynote speaker and internationally acknowledged as a cutting-edge technology futurist, commentator, strategy advisor, and thought leader. She is the founder and CEO of Market Clarity, an award-winning technology analyst firm that provides specialized insight, intelligence, and advice on all aspects of emerging technologies. Today we dive into a post-COVID future and what leaders need to do to adapt. In the dialogue, we discuss how to understand which lessons from the past are relevant, post-COVID work environments, more thoughtful human interactions and touch, adjusting our level of risk, why the next six months will determine the next two to three years, and the inequality of pandemic effects on different populations and how that affects the future. Let's dive in to the dialogue. Aloha, Shara and Alana. Thank you both for joining me on this episode today. And as always, I want to start with this key question of how can leadership be more intelligent about the future, given uncertainty, complexity, and exponential change in the world? I'd like to start with Alana. So as a global health person, I've been thinking about this a lot in the context of COVID-19, specifically in terms of what we believe we know about the future and what it turns out we actually know about the future. And one of the things that we try to do as a discipline in global health is think about the future and think on a long time horizon. And when we talked about pandemics and we've been talking about pandemics for decades, we always thought about an influenza pandemic. And I mean, I'm part of the problem. You can look at the book I wrote in 2012 and I talk about the risk of an influenza pandemic. And it never occurred to me we'd have a different kind of viral pandemic. So there's this tendency to assume Even though that we know the future is different and things will change, there's a tendency to assume that the problems of the past are going to be the problems of the future. And there's a need, in my opinion, to find a way to learn from the past in a less obvious way. And in terms of the thinking we did about influenza pandemic turned out to be very relevant to the current moment. So we may not have been thinking about the right virus, but the thinking that we did did turn out to be useful. So I think there's something core here about learning the right lessons from what's happened to us. Great. Thanks, Alana. And Shara, from your perspective and your work, how, how do you answer this question? Well, before I answer the question, I'd actually like to ask Alana a question since you've Great. done so much work on planning for pandemics. 
and I know a lot of people in the medical community were concerned about pandemics for a very long time. So how is it that we were so caught off guard with a shortage of supplies, particularly things like masks and gowns and other basic medical necessities, irrespective of what kind of illness it is, that seems to have hit us globally, even though so many people in the medical profession knew that a pandemic could be an event that would happen, couldn't actually say, where and when it might strike. Nobody really could know that. Um, and I've even thought of it as a technology futurist as one of the black swan events that a pandemic of some sort could hit the world, but not knowing exactly what shape or form it might have. So I'm really interested in your thoughts on why are, we've had such a supply shortage. There's a couple reasons for that. One of which is, the core reason, I think, is that people are very, very bad at thinking about rare abstract events. And the idea of a global pandemic is both, you're correct, it is certain it will occur at some point, but the when and there is unknown. So it's sort of rare to most people, rare to have to think about, and quite abstract because, you know, well, now everybody's lived through a pandemic, but until recently that wasn't true, so it wasn't something people could really wrap their minds around. And then if you look at how do you be prepared with supplies and so on, we're looking at having supply stockpiles, we're looking at warehousing things that we wear, may or may not use, and things that in the medical field do in fact expire because plastic degrades, materials get old. So you're investing in preparation for a rare event that people that don't really understand. And the people generally allocating the money for that preparation are politicians. And statistically, they're not going to be in office when the pandemic hits. So they're not going to take the blame when the unpreparedness occurs. So there isn't a lot of incentive at the leadership level to invest in these kinds of things, because when the disaster happens, you're probably not going to be in the in office to benefit from that foresight. Mm. And then finally, with a focus on reducing costs and shifting to lean supply chains, it's really easy to get in the habit of assuming that you'll always be able to order what you need and get it right away. And the idea that this could stop, I think, is hard to process. So, you know, healthcare is incredibly expensive. And everybody's trying to squeeze as much health care as they can out of a limited amount of funding. And re reducing the amount of stock that you had on hand and depending on ordering, making your supply chains efficient. In this particular case, efficiency and preparedness were at odds with each other. That makes perfect sense. And thank you for answering my question before I answer Tyler's question. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'll go to answering Tyler's question. In a lot of what I've been thinking about lately, well, a lot to do with COVID-19, but specifically working from home and some of the challenges inherent in doing that. And now that lockdowns are starting to be lifted in various parts of the world, and specifically in Australia where I live, we're starting to ease restrictions very, very gradually it's become really top of mind for me. So one of my observations about working from home was that a lot of companies and people really were not prepared for this and were scrambling to put together 
the right kind of tools for people to do remote collaboration. But security and privacy seems to be missing in action in a lot of cases. And another thing that has really struck me is the ergonomics of working from home. And a lot of people just do not have home offices set up that are of an equivalent nature to the kind of environment that they might have in their regular office. So in their regular office, they might have a comfortable chair, a desk that's at the proper level so that they're not straining their back or their wrist or their neck. They have big screens, whereas at home, they've got kitchen tables that they might be working from, dining room tables. I even have a friend that's been using an ironing board to set a laptop <laughs> on because it's the only surface that he had that he could adjust to be at a level that was comfortable for him to type at all day. The other counters and desks in his house turned out to not be comfortable to work at on a long-term basis. And, you know, like these are just things that you wouldn't have normally <laughs> thought about before you mm. suddenly have a government says, well, we have lockdown rules and businesses must close no more than X number of people in any building. And if you're a non-essential business, you're not allowed to open. And if you want to continue running your business, your staff must work from home. Mm. And so... It's a bit of a dilemma and I don't know that this is going to change in the short term, but it's one of those things that I think we should start thinking about in terms of future preparedness, especially if we end up with waves of the pandemic coming and going, which I truly hope is not the case. Mm. But if it is, then I think we need to invest in having proper work environments for people to be able to work out of their house in a manner that is safe and conducive to productivity. And companies also need to recognize that if someone is working from home, even if they're putting in the same number of hours, but they're working from a tiny laptop screen on an uncomfortable surface and an uncomfortable chair, they're not going to be nearly as productive as they would be if they were in their office with a 34 inch monitor and all kinds of bells and whistles and IT support and huge internet connections and at home, their bandwidth may not be nearly as good as they are accustomed to in an office environment. Yeah, super interesting, both of you talking a lot about the disruption and not, not really being prepared for it, although there was already hints that some of these kinds of things could become the new normal. Um, and what I think one of the things I'm kind of interested as we're talking here is this idea of you know, how, uh, how do we prepare for the future? And I think I, it seems to me there's some, there's some conflict. On one hand, um, like Alana 
is sharing that uh, maybe we weren't as prepared. Part of that could be because of short-termism, uh, short-term focus, lack of contingency plans. But if we have a situation where um, we have like constant disruption from like waves of a virus, let's say, um, how do we prepare for the future, especially in the business environment where, you know, it's, it's, it becomes like, we don't know what the future is going to bring. It becomes so much more uncertain and I have to prepare for these waves. Why don't I just focus on the short term even more? Um, what are your thoughts on that, Alana? So we know some of the things that the future is going to bring. Mm -hmm. And we've always been in an environment where you're making a decision based on some of the factors, not all the factors, because you can never know all the factors. So I think the key is to identify what you do know. And what we do know is, as Shara mentioned, that you know we're gonna be in a situation where people can transmit the virus to each other and people are gonna be thinking about that, about transmission, about infection. So, you know, if your business is a restaurant, you need to assume you're not going to be able to pack your tables in close together, that you're going to have to space them out. If your business requires that people wait in line, you're going to need to structure those lines differently. Um, if you're sort of, if you're providing a service that maybe enables people to shift their work from in-person to remote, you're in a good position because you know your demand's going to be increasing. So I think, in my opinion, if you look very closely at what's going on now and you see you know, what are the factors that we do know that are likely to continue if these waves keep coming. And I will say if, just to be gentle and support everyone's hope, um, then what can we learn about that in terms of what we will need for the future, both short-term and long-term? And then I think there's some very, if you're thinking truly long-term, there's some really big picture issues to think about in terms of where do new diseases come from? What can we do to stop those pathogens from evolving from mutating and from shifting over into people. Hmm. Shara, your thoughts on this long-term focus versus short-term focus? Okay, um, I'd like to just pick up on where Alana yeah. left off and then Great. go to some other thoughts. Perfect. Um, in terms of where new diseases may come from and how can we try to catch them early, I think that this is an excellent problem that we can use data sets and feed them into artificial intelligence algorithms to help us try to figure out from this massive data that we're collecting where we're starting to see patterns because AI is super good at looking at pattern recognition, but you need human supervision to oversee it because it's very easy for AI to go off track and start making wrong decisions. And then you have to put it back on track through techniques like reinforcement learning. Hmm. But that is something that we absolutely have in our toolkit today that we can start to use to look at patterns that are emerging and try to make sense of what's happening with this disease and potentially with future diseases. And by the way, these tools also have economic advantages as well. Now, the problem with automation, of course, is that there are some jobs that people would have ordinarily been done, been doing rather, and now robots are doing those jobs. In today's environment with the pandemic, 
it makes sense for a robot to do it because we don't want to endanger the life of a human being. But if we look further down the track when the disease is under control, then what happens to the people who might have been doing that job now? So part of our social responsibility from a country, company, and society perspective is to make sure that we're reskilling and retraining people with skills that will fit in whatever the new normal is. I'd also like to go back for a moment to this whole idea of working from home, mm -hmm. especially if it turns out that the pandemic comes and goes in waves, which again, I truly hope is not the case, but if it ends up being the case, then we need to ensure that our workers have appropriate ergonomic desks, chairs, laptops or computers, and other equipment that allows them to work without getting, you know, carpal tunnel syndrome or spraining their neck or hurting their back and being as productive as they can, even if they're not in a physical office. Mm. So one of the things that I think will become an important feature of real estate sales in the future will be the fact that somebody has a well-designed home office as mm. part of their house. Mm. I Again, I haven't heard anybody say this and I haven't seen any ads, you know, where they're really promoting it. But I think that if you've got a great home office environment or a great video studio environment or some of the other things that people are using to help them continue to work virtually while they need to maintain social distance, that that will actually add value to their real estate. Yeah, I think, no, I think that's great points on, on this kind of future of work and what, you know, how people are going to work, what kind of things they need. Um, and one of the things that I'm also interested with this future of work and how it also relates to health is um, this kind of future where we have well, we have a lot less human touch, like maybe a contactless, you know, future, right? Um, less contact with people. How do you see that affecting the future, Alana? I think that we're going to be much more thoughtful about human touch. Hmm. I think on the one hand that like the enforced social distance, the lockdowns has everyone realizing how very important that was to us and how much we feel like we're genuinely suffering when we don't hmm. have daily contact with people, with our friends, with our family and the people we care about. But at the same time, we've also realized how much time we spent sort of bumping up against and crammed into close quarters with strangers and people we don't need that contact with. So I think that it's not so much a future without human touch, it's a future where it's very, very deliberate and it's very chosen. So I actually think it's going to be a really interesting impact because it pushes both ways. It makes us realize how valuable it is to us and also how dangerous and how are we going to think about it. I don't think anyone's going to go to a music festival for a long, long time. Mm. But I wonder, you know, will people make more of an effort to get together with their friends in person instead of just having a text conversation? 
when we realize how unsatisfying a Zoom happy hour is, we're going to be a lot more likely to go out to the real happy hour. Mm. But again, you know, you're going to go out to real happy hour with your friends when you plan and you schedule it. Maybe you're not going to just roll up to a bar anytime you're bored and want to kill time. So mm. I think there's going to be this element of thoughtful choice and curation that wasn't there before. Mm. And uh, Shara, your thoughts? Uh, I, I really was very interested in what you had to say, Alana, and I'm a keynote speaker, so of course events are mm -hmm. part of what I do normally all the time, and a big part of my regular social contact, and gosh, do I ever miss that. Um, I'm not sure when the events industry is going to get back to any kind of semblance of new normal, much less old normal. Um, I truly hope it's sometime this year, at least with a combination of perhaps socially distanced live, live audience plus virtual audiences, you know, being able to stream in through some mechanism or another. But thinking about society in general, I wonder if we're going to become more germaphobic as a human race. And aside from close family and friends, be really afraid to start touching other people. And I also have been thinking a lot about what it will mean to be dating in a coronavirus world where the pandemic is still out there. And let's say you're single and it doesn't matter what age you are, whether you're a teenager in your 20s or you know older in life, what will dating be like normally you know the first thing you do is if you meet someone for the first time you give them a hug will we want to actually give a stranger a hug the first time we meet them much less anything you know more intimate going further down the line it has the potential to really change a lot of aspects of our society and how we interact but i think that we humans really are social creatures and that a virtual hug is a lot different than a real hug especially mm. from a family member or a close friend it's just not the same thing and unfortunately my family's very far away so i can't even really give them an in-person virtual hug i have to do it you know through you know video or phone but it's definitely not the same thing as being in person, even if you're waving, you know, from a social distance of six feet or whatever, you know, the mm. government decreed distancing is. There's this human nature that you just want to reach out to somebody that you care about and give them a hug, kiss them on the cheek or whatever. And mm. I just wonder if this lasts for a very long time whether our society behavior will change over the course of time. And I don't know the answer to that. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a friend and she, she worked in South Korea during the SARS outbreak in like 2003. And she was actually a teacher in a, a school there. And they had a lot of the strong, you know, recommendations they have now around masks and social distancing and touching things. And she said it lasted about a week. And then it was, it was just impossible to keep children from doing these things. It was, you have to get really 
authoritative um, in order to prevent that. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. You also, you adjust, like you don't, you start with like a new level of risk and you're very aware of the new level of risk, but you know, you spend a couple months at that level and it starts to feel normal and you begin to relax. Like we shift our baselines very, very quickly and we shift our behavior very quickly. You can also see things like, you know, um, if people start wearing a bike helmet, they start to take a few more risks on their bicycle because in their head it's evening out. So I think over time, we may or may not become germophobic because to some degree we'll just, this level of risk will start feeling comfortable and we'll just stop worrying about it. I think that also kind of plays into what Shara is saying too about the working from home too. It's something that um, we do, but it, we also kind of miss that office space. Do you kind of sense that too, Shara? Is that something you're seeing? Oh, I do because let's face it, a lot of people not just work with their colleagues, they become good friends with them and they share all kinds of things. They go out for drinks together, they celebrate birthdays, they celebrate weddings, they, you know, give each other hugs, you know, if someone in the family has passed away, you know, they're not just your workmates, they become your friends too. And working from home, it doesn't change that friendship, but it changes the dynamic of being able to have these ad hoc conversations as you pass somebody in the hallway or run into them somewhere in the building, you may not have those ad hoc conversations with people that you don't have to have specific work discussions with, but you would have had those chats just because they were working for your company and in the same general vicinity as you were. I also think that there's a ripple effect on the many businesses that services, service employees of companies, especially in CBD, Australian language, you know, central business district um, or downtown areas. And when you have all these buildings closed, all of the shops that support them also have lost all of their business and their regular trade. So there's this whole economic ripple effect on the economy that has a lot of social and economic undertones and mental health undertones. And that's something that people have been very reluctant to talk about. In, mm. You know, up until recently, if you've had any kind of mental health issue, it was a taboo subject and one that you would never raise with someone in a work environment. Whereas now I'm starting to see messages, at least from the Australian government, of all kinds of helplines to assist people who are feeling depressed because of economics or social isolation or worry or any of the many other things that come along with the pandemic. So perhaps one of the good things that will come out of this is that the stigma around getting support for mental health issues will disappear and that it will suddenly become okay to say, I'm really worried about X and be able to talk about it openly. Yeah, I really like how um, 
it just seems to me that this pandemic experience is bringing a lot of awareness to things that were kind of all, already there. We just weren't seeing or we weren't looking at them in the way we are now. And I think there's going to be a lot of, I hope there's a lot of positive change that comes out of it. And uh, what I'd love to hear from both of you kind of as a, a final kind of thought is, uh, you know, how do you see this, you know, I guess, what does the world look like uh, a year, two years or three years from now? And how is the things that are happening now created some of the change? Um, what are your thoughts, Alana? So we have options, the choices that our governments make and that we as communities and individuals make in the next, say, six months, I think are really going to determine what the world looks like in three years. In the United States and in a lot of countries, you're seeing almost a, two different pandemics. One where people who have white collar middle class jobs are inconvenienced by the poor ergonomics of their home office and people in trapped in the gig economy, people with factory jobs, people with meatpacking jobs are being knocked out of a precarious level of financial security into poverty and severe poverty. Mm -hmm. People lining up at food banks, people going hungry, people losing access to their health care, um, people who are really in trouble. Mm -hmm. And we can make choices to try to mitigate the inequitable impact of this pandemic and to create a, a safety net and protect the people who are being forced into poverty. Or we can ignore them. And mm -hmm. in a few years, the choices we make now about how we look after our fellow citizens, our fellow human beings, is going to affect what things look like at that point. Mm. You know, are our countries even more steeped in inequality? Do we see mortality rates uh, rise way up in people with lower incomes? Or do we see countries that actually move towards more protection and more equality and concern for each other? And just as a follow-up real quick, do you also see that not only within a country, but also between countries globally? Yes, very much so globally as well. And if we do start making decisions where we look at the lowest income countries and think about their healthcare needs and their health systems, that also helps protect us all from the next pandemic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Shara? Well, first, I agree with everything that Alana has said. And when it comes to the world in two to three years and what it will look like, my very first thought is it will really depend on whether we get a handle on the pandemic quickly or it actually ends up in waves over a period of years. If it turns out that we get a handle on things fairly quickly and we're able to go back to a semblance of normal in a couple of months, then this may end up being a blip that we learn from, but our society won't change in hugely drastic ways. That's a, I guess, positive best case scenario. Like Alana, I fear that we may end up having waves of a pandemic. And if that occurs, then some of the social subsidies and support that governments are putting out for relatively short-term periods to help people over the hump 
may not be available for two years or three years or longer. And that may force drastic changes to our society. There's been talk for many years now about this concept of a basic living wage where you don't actually have to trade your work, your time for subsist, you know, subsistence level living and comfortable living. But that's going to be a huge change for a lot of societies. And the question then would be, who would fund that? Because governments around the world are borrowing money that they don't have or printing money that they don't actually have. How long can that go on? And again, thinking on the really drastic side of things, if we end up with waves where we have to come in and out of forced quarantines, how long will it be until people start to rebel and say, I'm just not going to take it anymore? And who knows what will come out of it? And I mm. think we'll see different things in different parts of the world, depending on the society that they're in, you know, their social culture, the physical amount of space that they have. We may end up seeing parts of the world where you have a lot of land where entrepreneurs buy land and literally start to set up off the grid communities where they select people that have different skill sets and talents and invite them to become part of a self-sustaining community, actually forming a new kind of society that's if you like an offshoot from the society that we have today, we may end up with a world where we have haves and have nots. So those people who are fortunate enough to be in a job where they can work remotely through a computer interface, even if it's not a comfortable ergonomic home office, but they still have their full-time job and are getting paid, they might be the well-offs and There'll be a whole lot of people who've been hardworking citizens, many of whom are small businesses, and they've worked hard all of their life, but suddenly the rug gets pulled out from under them through no fault of their own, and they have no means of survival. What do we do about that? How do we support people when or if this pandemic goes on for a very long period or in a series of successive waves? And I wish I had the answer to that, mm -hmm. but these are the sorts of questions that I as a futurist think about and wonder which way it's going to go. At this stage, I would say it's still too early to predict which is the more likely outcome because we don't know what's going to happen as we start to ease these first rounds of lockdowns and whether we're going to see a bounce back. I think we'll need to wait another couple of months to see what happens with the initial loosening up of restrictions. And then we'll be in a better position as futurists to start to think about which way is the most likely way that this is going to pan out. Great, thanks, Shara. And just as a final question, I like to ask everyone, 
um, what is one word that you would like to leave um, for future leaders? So Alana, what's one word? Empathy. Empathy. And Shara? I love that word. And I'll, I'll just use, I'm gonna, you asked for one, but I'll use two. Yeah. I'd like to say honesty and trust. Honesty and trust. You need, to, you need to be honest with your people and you need people to trust you as a leader. Great. Thank you, Shara and Alana for joining me today on this episode. I really appreciate your time, your insights and your wisdom. Thank you, Tyler. And thank you, Alana. Yeah, so thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you for joining us today on the Flowcast. To get a summary of today's dialogue, find out more about today's guests, listen to previous episodes, or discover more about Haku Global's neuroscience-based Futures Intelligent Leadership Programs or customized Strategic Foresight and Innovation Sprints, visit us at www.haku.global. At Haku Global, we believe it is time for more Futures Intelligent Leadership. The future is something we need to think more intelligently and feel more deeply about so we can collaborate to discover today's solutions for future problems. If you are in a leadership role and need support or training to scale futures intelligence across your organization, then contact us at Haku Global. This is your host, Tyler Mongan, and until next time, have a preferred and conscious future. Aloha.